0: Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer R. Levin, and I'm a traumatic grief therapist and founder of Therapy Heals, where we help organizations and individuals prepare and heal from sudden or unexpected death. And in my podcast, Untethered, Healing the Pain from Sudden Death, I share resources and stories to help you go from the chaos of sudden or unexpected death to move towards healing in your life. Hi everyone, and welcome to Untethered, healing the pain from a sudden death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. In today's podcast, I interview Cindy and Meryl Muck. In today's podcast, I interview Cindy and Meryl Myers, who reflect on their dating experiences and invite us into their marriage after Cindy's first husband, Dan, was killed coming home from work one night. When a couple begins a romantic relationship after one of the partners has experienced the death of a loved one, it's not just a relationship of two. Circumstances depending, the presence, and in many cases, the family of the previous partner who has died, is a very real part of the relationship with needs of their own that must be honored and addressed. Today's interview explores Cindy's early coping with her traumatic grief after Dan died and her initial dating experiences with Merle. We then delve into the myriad of issues the couple had to face throughout their marriage, including communication, family dynamics, and coping mechanisms. Hi, Merlin, Cindy. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, why don't you start off and just share a little bit about yourself? Um, Cindy, why don't you go first? Okay.
1: Um, well, We've been married for a long time. We have two adult children, 11 grandchildren. We come from very different backgrounds. I was raised in a family with three sisters, no brothers, and two parents. Uh, My mom was a stay-at-home mom that had some emotional uh, challenges, and my dad was an engineer at Boeing, so pretty traditional, you know, like um, middle-of-the-road sort of thing. And
0: what, what are some things that you like to do? Um, just tell us a little bit about yourself personally. Well, I was in
1: the hiking club in school. I did a lot, a lot of music. My mom had been a music major and I followed my parents to the University of Washington, primarily because neither of my sisters went there. So I was not going to be characterized as somebody else <laughs> like, <laughs> like I had in high school. That was a little rough. Um, and... So lots of music, lots of sports, lots of community involvement, a lot of volunteering. And I worked as an accountant for many, many years, did taxes and stuff. It wasn't the numbers. It was easy for me to do the numbers, but it was the people. I really enjoyed meeting the clients and solving the problems.
0: So you're a people person.
1: I am. And I also like an answer to my questions. So I thrived on things like math where there was an answer Rather than theoretical things, where you know, art was not my thing, but I appreciate great art. I just am not good at creating it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So yeah, yeah, a real community kind of person.
0: Okay. And Merle, what about you?
2: I came from uh, quite a different background from Cindy. I was uh, only child, uh, raised by a single mom, and uh, there, there was a lot of uh, moving around growing up and uh it, the economy was pretty tough in the 60s and 70s so uh we did uh kind of move around and follow the work that kind of thing um so yeah it was just completely different and and when I met Cindy polar opposites uh solid family and uh you know very very well grounded in each other and uh yeah, I like to meet people where they're at. And so it was a great experience getting to know uh them and then and, and their life. So yeah.
0: What are some of the things that you like to do these days? Your- these days yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So I have um retired from Boeing after 31 years. I was quality manager for 15 years and Cindy and I uh traditionally volunteer. We've been married gee, 41 years and change now, but we volunteered even when we had little kids in the house. Uh our our big one uh at first was a special offender center in Monroe. So uh we at the prison at the prison we uh, dealt with uh uh special offenders like uh homicide, um boy, pedophiles, they they were all there and we were building bridges with these folks and we really uh, enjoyed building those relationships but then the prison system in order to make money they would move the prisoners uh oh i'm going to walla walla next week and i think that's how they made a lot of their money so we would start these relationships and then all of a sudden they'd be gone and we decided hey we don't want to do letter campaigns and, and keep starting over and then i took a transfer uh, from boeing to texas we were there for four years and then we did community outreach there went to england for three years on assignment and then we came back we were sitting in church where are we going to volunteer hospice sent out an email blast we need volunteers <laughs> so we looked at each other let's give this a world and we went through the training fantastic training And we started on the end of life side. And then uh, I went into Camp Aaron. It was a big buddy grief camp for kiddos. And then it was the bereavement side that sucked me in like a tractor beam. Then Providence, as a volunteer, had me facilitating (laughs) groups, uh, supporting with one on ones. I was doing, I think, three groups a month. After work, I'd go to Providence and, and lead a group. And by this
1: time he'd lost his mom, his dad, and his uh stepdad figure, never married his mom, but three significant parents in a short yeah. space of time.
2: Yeah.
0: So you are both um community people, volunteers. I can just tell you're very big uh people, uh uh people people. Me we so. did uh, yes. together. Yeah. 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 We've so, had interest. Yeah. So today, we are actually going to talk about how um, sudden or unexpected death impacts new relationships and marriage. And, Ro, you just said that the two of you have been married for over 40 years and change, to use your expression. And um, I know that uh, shortly um, before you got married, um, Cindy, your husband, Dan, died unexpectedly. And I really want to thank you both for agreeing today to take a trip down a, a painful memory lane and share with us your early experiences in your relationship and how Dan's presence and the grief has remained part of your marriage throughout the years. Um, I work with a lot of clients who, after you know, some of their healing, um, start to get into a new relationship who, um, you know, after a a spouse or a partner has died. And so I think they're going to find this really interesting today to hear your perspective of what it was like for you to start dating Cindy and Mm -hmm. um, Merle, what it was like for you to kind of have Dan's presence in that relationship. So I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Cindy, um, describe for us what happened Um, when Dan did die, um, what was it about 42 years ago now? Uh,
1: 43. Yeah. 43. Yeah. Um, he didn't come home from work and he was on the swing shift. So he got off at 1130, should have been home by 1150 or so, didn't show up. And I had heard sirens and stuff, but didn't really think anything about that. But then when he didn't show up, I thought, oh, he's, he had been trained as a mechanic and he was very good. And I thought, oh, he's helping somebody at the Boeing. Parking lot or something. And then I thought about 10 minutes later, he would have called me, even though we didn't have cell phones at that time. He would have found a way to call me and let me know what happened, and he hadn't called. So then I started getting concerned, and I had my hand on the door to leave, and I just didn't leave um i thought oh if i go and he comes back then i'm going to miss him and he won't know where i am so i thought i better write a note you know and then i better check with 911 well i called 911 and they were amazing and they kept me on the phone not the first time but they said they'd call me back and then i called them like 10 minutes later and said i haven't heard back and they kept me on the phone and passed me around to a couple of people um, saying, oh, we're going to check this. Oh, you know what? There's another listing. We're going to check that and see. Nope, we don't have any accidents. And um, they kept me on there until the coroner could finish his investigation on the site and then come back to my place. So uh, he had gone in the neighbor's driveway and I saw the coroner's van coming. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, Dan's hurt somebody and he's being questioned and whatever. So I didn't ever think that it was him, but when the coroner came in, asked if I had somebody else to call. So he called my sister and her husband to have them coming over. And then he takes out Dan's driver's license from his pocket. And then I figured out, oh, you know, I know what this is. And I immediately had this reaction. That is not yours. Why do you have that? But I didn't say that, but that's how I felt. And I remember that really powerful, like, give me that. It is not yours. So, um, so he told me what had happened and told me that they had kept me at home because they didn't want me to come upon the accident. He had been hit on the Muckle Teal Speedway head on by a truck and it was a hit and run. Um, so the bumper of the truck was left at the scene of the accident, but he was, he had been in the ditch and they just did not want me coming on that scene. So um, asked if I had any questions and I, Just got up and started folding laundry and i said i'm sorry i can't sit still he goes that's fine whatever so he waited till my sister got there and then i went and stayed at my parents house but they were out of town so um we called chelan where my parents were vacationing and told the police what their car looked like and they found my parents and had my parents come back and that's what the first 12 or so hours
0: was like wow what do you remember Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure even though 43 years later, that's not got to be an easy story.
1: No, it makes me a little restless to tell it, but I'm fine.
0: Thank you for sharing that. What do you remember about your grief early on?
1: Oh, nothing had a place. I didn't handle it well. I was very restless, um, didn't sleep much. I had just that day seen Dan and we were on opposite schedules kind of, cause we were both working and both going to school, but I had had a, a number 10 out of 10 counseling session for depression, which they determined was just a learned behavior from my mom's mental illness. And they had kind of released me, you know, and Dan had gone to that appointment to find out what the ongoing instructions would be and so forth. So I'd seen him that afternoon And then we had talked about Mount St. Helens because that was a day that the volcano became active. So we were on the phone several times. It wasn't the day that it exploded, but it was the day that the volcano was active. Uh, So we had talked, you know, several times. And then just to have all of that expectation just gone, like I suddenly have no future. I suddenly have no place to live because I didn't want to live at our house without him. I didn't have I had my job, but obviously I didn't go into that right away. They did give me a little bit of um, sleeping pills, which I used for like two or three days. I had a couple of very vivid dreams, um, one of which I couldn't say if it was really him communicating with me or not. I, I have doubts about that. But um, the other one I know is just my fabrication of my brain. It was a little bit different in that it was all stuff I would say and not really stuff he would have said. Mm -hmm. So I could tell that my brain was just kind of processing things. Um, The family was very supportive, but I was just restless and didn't belong anywhere. Wow.
0: You said you didn't um, handle it well. Um, What does that mean? I went with people everywhere
1: they wanted to go or whatever they wanted to do. I was in close contact with his family because they pretty much had adopted me. I mean, when I first met his parents, they said, call us mom and dad. And we were just dating. But they knew that we would probably get married at that point already. But I went places with friends. I moved in with different friends. I just like, yeah, I didn't want to be alone. So I moved in with a friend and then I find out that she has boyfriends sleeping overnight and I'm going like, that's not what I'm up for. I don't need this relationship stuff going on. And then I moved in with a brother and sister who are also other students at my school. I did go back to school to finish my um, AA degree and then the sister has a boyfriend that moves (laughs) like i just got away from that and it was winter and they didn't want to heat the place and then i found that people had been in my room and then i decided i'm going to move somewhere else so i moved in with someone else i don't even remember the whole chain and i would go places go out at night i never was the type to go out partying or dancing so i thought oh doesn't matter anymore. I'll go out partying and dancing. And I'd go out, someone would ask me to dance. I'd say, no, thanks. And I'd go around and go back home, you know, just like, oh, that wasn't helpful either. So I didn't have any activities that I was interested in. I didn't really care that much about school. I still don't even remember what the campus looked like, hardly at all. Um, I was just in a fog. So I I didn't, I was not gracious. I did not go to church. (laughs) I did not you know, do all of the things that would have been good for me at the time.
0: Mm. Mm. When did uh, Merle come into the picture?
1: I met Merle through other people at Boeing. So I had gone places with people that knew Dan from Boeing. Merle had worked there and knew Dan before, Mm. but then had not been working there for a while or got moved to another area or something. And then he came back and he goes, where's Dan? And they go like, oh, didn't you hear, you know? So Merle was going scuba diving with another one of the guys or two guys from Boeing, and they invited me to go along. And I met him on that scuba diving trip. I was not diving, but I was just on the boat and part of the crew, part of the gang. So we were all kind of together at that point in time. Yeah. So
0: Merle, when did you and Cindy start dating
2: Oh uh, I I I recall it's about 6 months it was official then um but yeah we were just kind of hanging in with the same crowd and uh you know crowd members would people would come into the crowd others would step away not be in the crowd for a while so it was that kind of a a fluid um society almost <laughs> and and it was great and then um we, I finally did ask her out, of course, uh, out of courtesy, I waited till it was finals week for her. And uh, <laughs> it
1: was horrible. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't go because <laughs> I have to pass this test.
2: Yeah. Just, just for a little <laughs> while. So, you know, we'd go out and have a beer and pizza. And then one night, I took which her. I
1: don't drink beer, but I, I went because I was struggling with my studying.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I took her to a Rush concert that week. And uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun drives where we would put on um Bible instructional cassettes I don't think the array tracks I think they were cassettes Cassette. by that time and uh you know and there'd be a lot of questions and answers and then I'd pretend I knew what I was talking about and I could you know wax eloquently with these theological answers and everything I think I was probably right most of the time uh but it it was great interaction back and forth she i'm a first generation christian i kind of started bringing myself to church growing up and uh she i think cindy was dropped off at church but there was never really the big spiritual component in our families so it kind of got the click for both of us
1: yeah And I, meanwhile, was accepting dates from invitations from people at school and another friend and stuff like that. So I was really running myself ragged going to school and going to every social event that I got invited to. So um, he was inviting me out, but it wasn't an exclusive relationship or anything for another number
0: of months. So when it did become exclusive... What was it like for you, Cindy, to be in a serious relationship again after Dan's death?
1: Well, I was seriously not going to be in one. Thank you.
0: (laughs) I just said, I will go places
1: with you, but I've already had the best that I can have. And there isn't any better. I'm not looking for a relationship. He goes, okay, we'll just be friends. And about a week later, um, he kissed me and I'm going like, well, that felt pretty good. <laughs> so then he said, I would like to go out with you and have you not going out with all those other people. And I go, huh. And so we talked about it a little bit and I don't know. I guess I said, yeah, we can give that a try, but I'm not looking for a permanent relationship. So I just really was clear that this was not gonna go somewhere.
0: Okay. How did um how was the grief for you during all of this? Did you feel Dan's presence? What feelings were going on for you?
1: Well, and this is a little bit of challenge not to really talk about Dan once we decided to date, because before then I felt perfectly comfortable saying, you know, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. But then I thought it was unfair to Merle for me to bring it up. So I thought of Dan every day and actually have For all but a handful of days in these last 40 years, I just think of him because so much of who I am today, you know, that was a very impressionable time in my life in my 20s, my early 20s. And he taught me so many things about living on my own and taking care of myself. So a lot of who I am is out of that relationship. But I tried to not be bringing up anything about Dan unless I kind of got permission from him. So every permission from Merle. Yeah, every couple of weeks or so, I'd say, "Could I talk to you about something I've been thinking about?" He'd go, "Yeah, sure." But I tried really hard not to make it, you know, the middle of our relationship once we were actually dating, because, you know, but it still was a part of my life, of of course.
2: Well, we tried to really make it a part of our relationship too, because he was a he was a good man, a good young man. They were both kids at the time, but he he was a, a good guy and uh, we automatically kind of made it a big tent by including his parents and uh, his siblings the siblings uh i got along with uh didn't agree with them uh, at all spiritually and uh with one of them uh, i agree with kind of politically but we still got along and uh, you know they got cheated by by losing a sibling and a son and uh To this day, our our kids would, you know, call them aunt, uncle, uh, grandma still with us. Uh, So they were part of our family. So it it wasn't a thing where it should be taboo because that was a very uh, integral part of her life. It was very short and and, uh, ended way too soon but
1: but uh, then we didn't want to have Dan be a part of our relationship especially once we talked about getting married
2: yeah I was never compared to Dan by her and that's really what made it so easy I think for me so
1: yeah so I did a little bit of journaling I did a little bit of reaching out to other people that I felt like I could talk to more openly and then if it was really something on my mind I tell Merle I'd like to talk to him about something or get his feedback on something. Um, but I tried not to have him feel like he was, uh, being compared to a ghost who was being idealized, which I did sometimes. I'd say, Oh, you know, Dan would have done this or this. And he goes, no, he wouldn't, you know, cause he knew him. So he could say, you're idealizing. and I go, like, Okay. I am, you know, he that could totally call me on it. That was a big word for me
2: at the time. Too,
1: <laughs> so, um, there was a little bit of negotiation, but he was willing to feed back on that and I was careful to ask. And I don't think I ever shouted out to him about anything. I wish you were like Dan or something. You know, I, I felt it sometimes. <laughs> like, um, I wish I, I wish you were the kind of person that I'm already, you know, familiar with. I He's wish sure. I didn't have to break in to this He's new sure. relationship. I already did that.
2: And, and that was easier for her. Well, it was easier for me, harder for her, because, you know, young marrieds, they argue about the dumbest stuff. Well, she kind of went through that. And so I got the more mature model. Uh, she did have to kind of start over a bit with me. I got the immature <laughs> model. Yeah.
1: I had to teach him, you know, you know, grown up people don't do that. That was a junior high behavior. Stop that. Yeah. You know, so he was pretty accepting, you know, and once in a while walked away. And then I'd say walking away is a childish behavior. Don't do that. You stay here and you
0: talk it out. <laughs> so, say more about the word negotiating. Where you had to do a little bit of negotiating.
1: Um, I told him what I thought, and he would get mad and walk away, and then come back and say, "I thought about what you said, and this part of it makes sense. That part of it doesn't have to do with me. That's that's a another." That's another world. That's not my world. So yeah,
2: a lot of skills I actually started to learn uh, through the relationship because it was it was a very different dynamic in my house with people coming and going in the house and um, a lot of lack of communication or silence, uh, eye rolls, that kind of thing.
1: As he grew up, as
2: I grew up, yeah. So yeah, this was all kind of new territory.
1: So we, um, well, Merle's not really a vocal processor and I am. Um we accepted coaching from people we trusted and we especially had a couple that were friends and she was a lot like Merle and he was a lot like me. Like if that husband and if I were going to be late, we would call the other person. If she was going to be late or Merle was going to be late, they were late. You know, like they didn't call ahead. So I could often call this one friend and say this is what's happening. Explain it to me. And she would be able to explain, you know, that's not a big deal. And this is how it is. And blah, blah, blah. And they had known him since high school. So it was very helpful to find another couple with a different dynamic that could articulate some of the stuff that mm-hmm. we couldn't explain. Mm-hmm. So that was the negotiation. It, it involved finding our resources and getting someone who could, you know, clarify things for us. So the early part of our relationship, maybe the first year or two was, um, oh, maybe 10.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> One, two or 10. <laughs> two or 10. You know, and as we started to have the kids and stuff like that, uh, these guys already had kids. So they were able to say, yeah, we don't agree on everything, but here's what we do. We expose the kids to everything except, you know, some of the stuff that's that you can't forget. And so they helped us arrive at a cohesive way of parenting mm-hmm. uh, by being able to throw these things in there having friends with kids a little bit older than yours and who have been married a little bit longer than you I can't express how valuable mm-hmm. that's yeah, absolutely kids.
0: so Marl I have an interesting question for you did you ever find yourself feeling like envy not envious but like jealous or insecure of Dan insecure of yourself um or or jealous at all
2: no because he was raised in a different uh family environment i mean he had a father around and uh, they did family things like boy scouts and i think i think uh grandpa don was a scout leader too uh so those are things that um they had put in place and uh they thrived with and uh yeah i really felt uh glad
0: mm-hmm.
2: that, that they had um achieved what they had as a family mm-hmm. and again they were they were total innocence with the accident and and the loss mm-hmm. you know, why should they have to pay more mm-hmm. so it was, it was a thing to kind of celebrate um yeah mm-hmm. and, and again it was he was never thrown in my face mm-hmm. so yeah
1: but the way we handle things is way different because of our different family backgrounds. So my family background was so much like Dan's. We, He was kid number two out of four, and I was kid number three out of four. And we both had parents who worked at Boeing. And, you know, we just already knew, you know, a lot like brother and sister, how everything was going to go. We both had big families uh, Merle walked into a big family. Mm-hmm. He was an only child and I had two big families <laughs> for him. So I think that was hard because he'd just get uh, peopled out, I guess I would say.
2: Well, there was there was times where, yeah, you know, uh, mm-hmm. dinner or lunch would go on and on and, you know, just kind of sitting around. You get bored in, in, in the environment, but you're not bored with the people. So it was... It was good uh, being part of two large families. Yeah. families.
0: What was that like for your family, Merle? Because all of a sudden they kind of overnight inherited two other families.
2: Mm -hmm. How did that go? uh, Not well. There was an opportunity to inherit uh, two other families. But um, being um, an only child with with no father around, uh, things were fine until – we determined to get married and then there we were met with antagonism especially uh cindy and then i was kind of in the role of protector and then when our kids showed up uh there was a lot of vindictiveness and uh, it, th- there was some mental illness growing up and mm-hmm. that tend to manifest itself so it was having to be on guard um you know going over to my family's house for Christmas or Thanksgiving and then having to leave to go to the next you know other two families her and her and Dan's uh that that got very very hard and very tense some years yeah. I I hated the the whole idea of the holidays coming up because it was going to be an instant replay yeah.
1: wow. but Merle had also been his mom's protector so we had a few discussions about you know, the complexity of stuff, you know, don't mention Danner's family, don't, don't do any of this, it just makes it harder for my mom. So, you know, he was kind of protecting his mom, too, because he'd grown up as her man of the house. I mean, So he was protecting me, like, right at the moment, mostly by insulating what was going on. But he was protecting her at the same time, from all the things that he knew were upsetting to her.
2: And it was a no-win because no matter who I married, that person would be the enemy. So there was going to be lashing out sooner or later. About every get-together, there there was some form of that.
1: And she saw me as Dan's widow. So, like, if he died, he's done. Forget about him. Forget about his family. And his mom was really struggling with me having any loyalties to that extended family, which... um We Merle and I had to work it out between us once we agreed, then whatever everybody else thought didn't matter. And we were just polite, like, okay, we just say, okay, (laughs) you know, and deal with the frustration. But there were some shouting matches of how I was handling everything so poorly. I had to think through, you know, was I, or wasn't I, and who's going to be my resource? You know, you tend to go to a resource that will tell you what you want to hear. But in that case, I wanted the truth. So I had to figure out who's gonna feed back to me what's really going on here and how I should handle this.
2: And and there,
1: Merle was pretty good about it, but he was also too close.
2: Yeah, there's times I would just pull my family from there for three to six months. Six months when it got really bad. Uh, but usually three months. And then, you know, there was this kind of enemies at war under a truce, you know, niceties, and uh and then it would just get uh progressively worse but uh she had a terminal uh lung cancer diagnosis it did come together at the end where she actually let Cindy come in and to her room help uh, with
1: the caregiving. help
2: with caregiving so that was kind of a uh uh I wouldn't say uneasy reconciliation It, it could have been much better but it could have ended much worse
1: but I think the helpful part for us was making a decision together how are we going to handle this what are you going to do here's our code words right we have escape code words Mm -hmm. um like um when she started landing on our daughter for crying out loud that was 10 years old Uh and she should be serving her brother or whatever it was just part of the behavior thing and um she was trying to kind of drive a wedge between some different family members and that was completely unfamiliar to me but when Merle and I could talk about it Merle decided his loyalty was going to be to me but he wasn't going to give up on his loyalty to his mom so but, once he could say that then we established what the baseline was going to be and we could work from
2: there yeah so I I had to have an underlying philosophy a code with this whole thing and and this would be a question I would ask uh young husbands that are going through the same thing with the families. Uh, are you going to be married to your mother or are you going to be married to your wife?
1: Mm.
2: It's your choice. I mean, and you can't go back and forth.
1: And for you me, know. are you going to be married to Dan or are you going to be married to Merle? Yeah. So there were a couple of decision points for me.
2: Yeah. My, my, uh, my journey as uh, an in-law in these two families was great hers was different hers was a rather rocky road that oftentimes when yeah, yeah and, and when the uh her boyfriend died when she died and after we, we were caregiving with both of them um it his was, mom's boyfriend yeah it was and he was always in and out and he had his own thing things um you know it was like uh, I didn't even care I was just so glad they were both out of pain because they both had painful cancer that was the relief but other than that i i didn't care you know
1: yeah.
2: i felt bad about that too but, and then i didn't understand that until i got into hospice volunteering and then met with folks like you and and whatnot you know just kind of started gleaning uh yeah guys. yeah and
1: likewise we're still learning from you you know what some yeah. of these emotions mean that we go through that are connected to our past
0: Yeah, but the complexity here, I mean, you start off with grieving Dan's death, and then you're figuring out how to develop a a new marriage and incorporate Dan's memory, and then you've got the complexity of families and in-laws and allegiances to parents. I mean, so much stuff, which is why I was so glad you agreed to talk with us today. So you can just, I mean, of course, everyone's story is so different, but you're just (laughs) introducing all of the different things. Um, one other thing, you know, Cindy, you and Dan, you know, were just launching your life. And so you must have had so much of Dan's in your life that you had to sort through. What did you do with your house that you didn't live with? The belongings? How did you deal with all of the reminders of your previous life?
2: It's here.
1: Um, (laughs) And, and we love it
2: yeah
1: uh we did Merle and I early in our relationship before we had kids I think traveled to uh Hawaii and we got a teak chest there that's now at the foot of our bed and that's where our memory stuff goes so I have like Dan's Boy Scout badges we didn't ever have children Dan and I didn't so uh there's nobody to pass his stuff along to and his siblings uh got the things that they wanted to get But some of his commemoration stuff, his honor cords from high school graduation, his diploma, all that stuff is in that teak chest. So once every half dozen years, I open it up and just kind of thumb through that stuff. And uh, that's been a very nice memory that way. But again, as soon as we decided on something, that was when the piece would settle the dust from wherever we were struggling so it was um whenever something was undecided that we were both kind of thinking different ways about then that was harder yeah that's what we would have to kind of agree on and we even found that in our relationship because we are so different in our backgrounds but we like to we land at the same spot we like the same stuff then um, about every five or six weeks we need to just break away, kind of reset, go over stuff, especially now that we're both still volunteering in the community. So um, we figured out that. We also figured out I have Dan's birthday, death date, and our anniversary date, where I do whatever I want those days. If I have to work, I work. But um, afterward, then I go do something that I just feel like doing at the time that I think that Dan would do for me or with me. And the first decade or so I didn't invite Merle but after that I started telling him what I planned and if he wanted to go or not so usually involved the mountains or the beach or the or I don't know dinner out or something mm-hmm. like that so
2: and then also go ahead
0: oh I was gonna say oh that's just wonderful to hear
2: um back uh-huh. before we had met um I think probably even before you guys got married I bought 40 acres and uh, I was single wanted to be a mountain man And in north central Washington, beautiful country. And no, you were married because and then her and her husband bought 10 acres in Orville, So not too far, just across the valley uh, from where I was at. And about six years ago, we said, yeah, let's let's sell these properties. Uh, My 40 acres sold and then her 10 acres, hers and Dan's 10 acres sold. And she said, you know what? I want the proceeds from that to go to Dan's parents, his, his mother now, and uh, the siblings and the nieces and nephews. So she divided all that in honor of Dan and gave it to all these cousins that really didn't hear enough about Dan because uh, they weren't born. And so they got to hear about him and what he was about. And they got to get some, you know, some money from something that was dance their, um. their, you know, and sibling. So I thought that was that was wonderful. It was
1: a great connection to our nieces and nephews there.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, that's and great. To go back to the siblings and have a meeting with each one. And Merle came with me to all of those.
0: Yeah. That's really great. I did want to ask you a question about coping mechanisms real quick. Mm-hmm. When things got really tough for you, um what, Cindy, what did you do? And 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 Merle, please feel free to um to chime in as well. What helped you cope? you know, in early in your marriage and I'm sure throughout your
1: marriage? Um Yeah. We mentioned having friends that were a little more experienced at life and relationships than we were. Mm-hmm. We also um, volunteer. So we had a lot of connections in the community of various sorts, you know, mm-hmm. it might be needing help with a project or, or a thing or selling something like the cars and so forth that, that we had. Um, But our, my faith system you know as we had gone and driven and done these bible study kind of things i never read the bible because i was a christian but it was a history book and i was good at all the other stuff but not history so i just didn't read that big fat old thing that had a lot of history in it and then merle started to bring to reality that these principles that help you with living and um having christ in our relationship to me was one of the significant things that we are so different that that sealed a whole lot of of the differences and helped us to communicate we had a foundation for communication but i think that uh, regardless of our particular faith or my particular faith for people of any faith or no faith for them to decide what are they going to do with all those comments from all the people that say that they have spiritual advice or they um, your faith will help you or all these kind of nebulous comments that are unuseful Um, Once you decide what you're going to do with that, then there's a lot of orderliness and peace that comes with that. Mm -hmm. Deciding, Am I going to be closer to God? Am I going to be further away? And I went through a four month thing about a year and a half after Dan died. Am I either going to be mad at God for the rest of my life or trust him that he knows what he's doing? Mm -hmm. And I was pretty sure I was just going to stay mad because I was pretty mad because I figured God knew what was going to happen. He didn't stop it. And that's on him. So he's, I'm done with him. But then I come back to, you know, I really did believe there was a God. So, um, at about four months I thought, all right, I'm going to trust him. He knows what he's doing. And actually I met Merle that next week. Oh Um, you know, that was, I guess about a year after Dan died. So deciding what your attitude is going to be, not necessarily deciding all the stuff you believe, but deciding which path you're going to go down brings a lot of peace and orderliness to the decision-making process. And from there, you have something to relate to. Oh, good. That's what I felt like was significant.
2: With uh, with me, it was a different story because uh, I had some anger issues, so I would just get pissed off. And the, I thought that it was progress when I wouldn't hold a grudge or stay angry for a week because that was the culture uh, that I was brought up in. So, you know, getting angry and then getting over it was, was good. But then, and this took many, many years, understanding that somebody her, can bring something up. And i'm not being attacked Hmm. So that was huge just Mm -hmm. starting to learn that and you know you still have to i'm still having to undo that unlearn that right Uh, you know growing up anybody even in my adulthood that was older than me that would get in my grill and scream i i would that would what we call a trigger i mean i would just uh, so you know and and it's learning to get through those things that yeah you're not being attacked and i didn't
1: even scream i would ask a question like why did you do that? That mm-hmm. didn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah. And I'm trying to make sense out of it and I'm just being forward about it. And he's going like, quit attacking me. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, so for he decided his viewpoint was going to be not to jump to being attacked. Okay. And the decision of how he was going to approach it was okay. even more significant than what he did.
0: Okay. So I'd like to ask you two more questions. Um, So you both mentioned that you're involved in um, uh, helping out with um, and providing bereavement support. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted to ask, um, have um, your own grief experiences um, influenced the work you do right now?
1: Yeah, the fact that Dan was hit and it was a hit and run. I knew the guy actually in high school. And he lived not too far from there. And he was drinking heavily in high school. So I know he was likely drinking that night, but they didn't catch him until the next morning. So they couldn't prove it. Um, but I know that he um, was making just bad decisions, you know, the whole time. And I know Dan was laying in a ditch. I know, you know, this whole thing was really sudden. All of that, just makes it possible somehow now to be able to hear other people's story. And I can say, I get that. It's not like any other story and yet it's it's a real story, you know? I mean, it's just so unbelievable and you can't process what each step of all of that was and how much I just wanted to be with him wherever he was, alive or dead, whatever. And of course the coroners wouldn't let me do yeah. that. Um, so to not have access, to not be able to change it, know all of those things it really makes me feel like i can hear their story and i can say that i know i don't have the same story but i do get that it was super hard so to just be able to let people talk and then to be able to share resources that i've learned about since which many weren't around at the time yeah um but resources about understanding you know this all makes sense this is how your body's going to react this is how you You know, please do tell your doctor that you've experienced a significant loss recently if you're going to get some treatment for something because they could be related. And here's other people that I know that have gone through what you've gone through. And here's a group that you can participate in that will help you sort things out. So being able to share all of that is just so meaningful and seeing people's lights come on that there's actually hope. Yeah. Mm Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah what
0: about you
2: yeah uh, grief and loss wow it it never really hit me until our kids uh rather closely together moved out we raised them to where they they would if they wanted to move when they were 18 um they could well they up and did I mean they got their nerve I, and our daughter <laughs> was like 17 she uh started college early and uh it wasn't long after that I couldn't get out of bed and I was really depressed and we didn't know what was going on I don't think we had that lesson at hospice yet about that kind of loss uh she wanted to have me on suicide watch and it was really that bad we didn't I wasn't suicidal but it was unbelievable I didn't
1: want him to be alone for extended yeah, periods my time. joints
2: ached uh, in all the classic uh yeah. symptoms uh, so that was that was a huge learning curve there, and you know we've got two kids uh, and we've got eleven grandkids, and we're not Mormon or Catholic. I know what your audience is thinking right now, <laughs> but we've got a lot of grandkids. Uh, but you know they they understand these values too of bereavement and whatnot. And we've all learned from each other too.
0: So. Yeah. Well, um, we had such a great conversation, and we didn't get a lot of time to talk about everything that you do as community chaplains but we will post your website and all of your programs in our Facebook group. Oh, so okay. um we'll put all a link and everything that you do do so that our listeners can go to your website and see all of your um all of the things and the resources that you have.
1: Yeah, that's a collection of our favorite things from a lot of places, and some people have even written poetry and stories and sent them to yes. us. Yeah. Or so
0: we'll out. make sure that that's available, and we write about that.
2: Yeah. And we all steal from each other, don't yep.
0: we? Yep. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there's unfortunately there's enough pain to go around, and so yes. we want to make sure that we can help as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. So my final question for both of you is: What advice would you give to a new couple? Where one person in the relationship has experienced an unexpected death of a previous partner before they've gotten together, and now too they are living with grief in their new relationship. So, um, Merle, let's start with you.
2: I would say honor that wilderness journey. You know, don't don't let your uh, your grief, don't let your pain go to waste. Just do what you can to embrace it and learn from it. And, you know, let the people go that aren't going to be there to help, that you thought would be there. Uh, Not because they're bad people, but put them at a distance. Because there's going to be others that are going to want to share and going to want to just bring the curiosity. So be prepared for those people to show up. And that will put your life in a new trajectory.
1: Yeah, and I like what Merle says there about approaching things with curiosity, Um, approaching people, sharing the stories, reaching out. We have a responsibility to be there for one another, and we have a responsibility to reach out to care for ourselves. So there's groups, there's people, there's therapists like yourself. Um, There are resources, and we really collectively as a group want people's lives to function and function well. So if you're not feeling that hope, then search it out. Um we're we're glad to help you with that. And with our website, people can reach us anytime. And I'm sure they can write to you and get a time in your busy schedule that they might be able to get some really significant help as you are so wonderful at doing. So thank you very much.
0: Well thank you. This was such a wonderful discussion today and you just really helped illuminate um shed light on such the complexity that happens but you also showed um number 1 that it is so possible i've uh, had the pleasure of knowing you both now for almost uh 18 months coming so on yeah. years, i've worked with you um on another project but that you have this amazing marriage uh that works dan's presence i'm hearing is um i'm going to say the word alive and well in your marriage Um, even though he's unfortunately no longer, um, physically present on this earth, but you've done a lot of hard work to, Mm -hmm. um, to get through, um, Cindy individually, you know, the fact that he's no longer living, but to really negotiate. I loved how you used that word, um, you know, how difficult it was to figure out how to work through things in your marriage and with family relations. And it shows. And I, I just think that's such a great role model that you um are going to be to other people. And I've got clients who are struggling with this issue, this issue right now. And thank so I'm you. excited. Well, to show you, we do accept hugs. That's- <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> we
0: do accept hugs. Okay. Well, I will tell people that uh, <laughs> they are open for hugs, virtual <laughs> hugs. So thank you for sharing your story with us today. So, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you both to Merle and Cindy. I want to thank Cindy and Merle for opening up and sharing many of the issues they faced throughout the different phases of their relationship and marriage that were related to Cindy's grief and Dan's presence in their marriage. Human beings need love, companionship, and intimacy, and for many, The desire to enter a romantic relationship after the death of a partner is a natural course of action. In 1996, there was a study published in the Annals of Clinical Psychiatry that found approximately two years after the death of a spouse, Over 60% of the men who participated in the study and 20% of the women were either remarried or involved in a new romantic relationship. For the women, younger age was the biggest predictor of getting involved in a new relationship. And for the men, higher levels of monthly income and education level were the biggest predictors of getting into a new relationship two years after the death of a spouse. Now, psychological well-being was also a, excuse me, a significant predictor for both sexes. Now, I know this study is quite outdated, but I see many of these factors, especially age and psychological well-being at play today in many of the clients I work with who were deciding whether or not to date again after the death of a previous partner? Cindy was quite young when her husband Dan died, and she knew she wanted a family and to rebuild her life again with someone. In our interview, I so appreciate how open Cindy and Merle were with us regarding some of their early struggles and the long term issues they continued to face. Cindy talked about their continued need to negotiate challenges. For example, she said she had to be conscious not to idealize Dan throughout their marriage, not to compare him with Merle, and not to be, or or excuse me, her need to be patient with him in their new relationship. Merle also had his struggles. He struggled with anger Difficulties expressing his feelings, and early in their relationship, one of his coping mechanisms was walking away from difficult conversations. Cindy and Merle also understood the influence their upbringing and family of origin had on their renewed relationship, and Cindy's grief after Dan's death. Both Cindy and Dan came from large families and were accustomed to integrating the needs of others within the family system. Merle, on the other hand, was an only child to a single mother and was not used to large family interactions. His mom and his family were not accepting of Cindy or her situation, which was extremely difficult at times. Merle reported making a conscious effort to connect to the reality that Dan's family also lost a sibling and son, even though his mother was not able to do so. I truly admire Cindy and Merle's ability to reach out for support, or coaching as they called it, from friends who helped guide them through ruptures in their marriage that were also rooted in Dan's presence in their relationship. Cindy remembered having to make a conscious decision that she was married to Merle and not to Dan. Merle learned how to be patient, advocate for his needs, and also communicate his feelings in an appropriate manner. The couple shared with us the way they have created space in their home now for the keepsakes that are so important from Cindy's previous life with Dan. And how Merle's previous knowledge of Dan helped his adaptation to Cindy's grieving process. Finally, Merle also shared with us how grief, including the non-death grief, such as their kids leaving for college, continued to be a theme in their marriage. It was such a pleasure and an honor to be invited into their relationship and marriage, and the couple provided insight regarding the true realities that a new relationship encounters after the death of a partner. We were able to see how their grief evolved and changed over the years, and Cindy and Merle also channeled their grief experiences into other aspects of their life especially their vocation, as they have dedicated their lives to volunteering and pursuing chaplaincy paths to helping others who are also grieving, especially grief from sudden and unexpected death. I want to emphasize that every relationship will have their own unique challenges specific to the partners involved. However, there are themes that we saw today that I believe the overwhelming majority of new couples will face. First, the previous partner who died will always be a part of the relationship, and that presence will be there. It will impact the relationship as a whole, not only the individual who is grieving, but the new partner, associated family members, children, friends, I mean everyone. So whenever possible, I encourage you to consciously invite the deceased partner into your relationship. Include their presence in the relationship when it's appropriate. If the death of the individual who died becomes a taboo subject, if it's a topic that's uncomfortable, invoided, or swept under the rug, then it will most likely become the root of friction or tension. Over time, this relationship will become much easier to manage, and often their presence will fade into the background once it's acknowledged and integrated into new relationships. I also cannot emphasize the importance of communication about grief, idealization, comparisons, or coping mechanisms. Basically, communication about grief in new relationships. This communication is beyond important and needs to happen as soon as possible. We know that communication is the key in any relationship, that this type of communication, it is different. It is difficult, it's hard, but it is so essential. I have worked with countless numbers of couples who experience jealousy, who are unable to live up or feel they're unable to live up to standards of the deceased partner. When they feel there are unmet needs or expectations, you name it, all because the couple is uncomfortable talking about their feelings or their needs connected to grief and the deceased partner. I've also worked with couples where they're able to accept and integrate the deceased partner into the relationship, and it's such a positive and beautiful experience. So I encourage you, no matter how difficult it must seem or feels, communicate about it and communicate about it early on. If you can acknowledge that you are entering a relationship with a partner and their deceased partner, and you can communicate about the really tough stuff early on, you're setting your relationship up for success, and you will have the tools you need to encounter the toughest of struggles try and remember that the partner who's no longer living most likely wants nothing but happiness for their loved one. Once again, I want to thank Merle and Cindy for their insight on this important topic and letting us learn about their professional work and bereavement. If you want to learn more about the work that they do, please visit our Facebook group, talking about the podcast Untethered with Dr. Levin where there's a link to their websites and programs. Please stay tuned for our next interview on Wednesday, August 16th with Shannon Sessions, who's the executive director of Support 7. This is an amazing organization located in South Sononish County in Washington State. Shannon will be explaining the services they provide to individuals who've experienced a sudden and unexpected death to help them move from trauma to hope to healing. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of Untethered, healing the pain after a sudden death. To learn more about hope and guidance after sudden or unexpected death, please visit Therapy Heals and sign up for my new newsletter, Guidance in Grief at www.therapyheals.com. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For guidance and hope with unexpected or sudden death, please visit my website, www.therapyheals.com, to learn more about the services we offer. If you would like to share your story on our podcast, in service of helping others heal after a sudden or unexpected death, please email us at info@therapyheals.com.